Our uh, liturgy, our order of service, was a little different this morning uh, because it interwove stories and pictures and experiences. And there's something about a seamless vertical worship where if we just sing and read Scripture and hear preaching, that is a beautiful, uninterrupted thing. But what would vertical worship be without a picture of horizontal needs? And so often our Lord would just sit in simple settings and teach and bring in local experiences and place the needs that were all around him on the hearts of his listeners. So when we think of Nepal, what is an appropriate biblical response to that? So there are 23 unreached people groups. Every picture that you saw is only one people group. And it has the most gospel exposure than the other 22 unreached people groups. And like Mike had mentioned, they're unreached for a reason. Number one, they're hard to get to. It's difficult. Even in orientation, one of our team members passed out. That was just on the very first day in Kathmandu. Several of us got hit with E. coli. So there is a there's a cost and a challenge and a difficulty involved in taking the gospel there. But I can remember just trekking. Sometimes we'd have just large, large uh, chunks of time to just think and pray. And I remember just sort of arguing that the, the fame of Jesus Christ does not exist in those valleys. And we have a responsibility to get the good news to people who have never heard it before. Uh, the picture of the three young ladies, and I won't be using names. The picture of the three young ladies, the one in the middle, the, the taller one, the joyful one. Do you remember seeing her? It was her parents who were first generation Christians in that valley. And the monks took them up by a river and stoned her mother and her father for being followers of Jesus. And there she is in the same valley, preaching the good news to everyone she comes into contact with with incredible boldness and joy. That's just one of the many stories. The girl to the right, which was um, our guide, we had to have a guide as foreigners. We had to have a Nepali-trained guide even to be on the trails. And, but she's a believer, so, so this organization has trained these young people to be guides, and they are Christians, and... She was asking questions about, like Mike had said, about living in that culture. Because Buddhism isn't like how we interact with Christianity. Like we can be really Christian on Sunday morning and then sort of have our own individualized life through the rest of the week. And then kind of come back and be a Christian on Sunday. I mean, I don't believe that's true of most of us in here, but it's possible. There is no such thing in Tibetan Buddhism. To live in the Himalayas is to be Tibetan Buddhist. You, you breathe it, you, you drink it, you live it. And once you step outside of that, you're actually condemning an entire culture. That's why the opposition is so severe. Eternity hangs in the balances for every soul in the Himalayas. I was going to choose a different text, but I think, I think Revelation 19 puts forward a very appropriate picture in light of the needs in the Himalayas. And it's the picture of a wedding 
It's actually divided up, the first part of Revelation 19, in sort of these praise choruses. But unlike any chorus you have ever sung, you've got this incredible and deliberate contrast between two images, Babylon, the great harlot, and Christ's bride. And what you are promised as the church, as a saint, as a believer, is that there is a wedding coming. A beautiful, joyful ceremony where we are married to the Lamb. And you're invited to a feast after that. And it's an incredible picture. And these are images that we're familiar with. Two weeks ago, I I officiated a wedding. And there are flowers and there's music and there's celebration and there's joy and there's family and there's love and there's support. But the focus is the bride and the groom. That's what we're all there for. And it's an incredible picture that we relate to. In John chapter 17, John sees what Babylon truly is, the harlot, the great prostitute. And the point of depicting Babylon as such is to display how sin corrupts, perverts, destroys, and eventually kills. That's what Babylon does. She takes what God has made good and blessed and makes it immoral. She makes merchandise of things that should never be sold. Matter of fact, when when people are crying out, mourning over the fall of Babylon, one thing they miss was the merchandise of people, slaves. You read it right in your text. Babylon sells cheap perversions of God's free gifts, things we were intended to enjoy freely as gifts from Him, and she sells them for profit. She makes merchandise of things that should not be sold, things that are made to be enjoyed within the boundaries of God's instructions. It's interesting that Babylon's customers destroy her at the end of chapter 17. It's a vivid picture of how sin begets sin and how sin devours itself. But not only is the sinful world personified as a harlot, it's personified as a city. And as a city that rejects Jesus Christ as king, it will be, as chapter 16, verse 18 says, destroyed by an earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. And you saw some of the evidence of an earthquake right there in the Newbury Valley. And if you, would, if you were to actually go up in one of the offshoot valleys where Mike had traveled a couple years ago, you would see everything was absolutely flattened. There's coming a worse earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Chapter 18 describes the fall of Babylon. Kings of the earth weep over her. The merchants of the earth mourn for her. All shipmasters and seafaring men cry and weep and mourn. And everyone in the world who was exploited by her and in turn exploited her will lament Babylon's fall. But here's the important thing for us to remember as Jesus followers. When Babylon falls... Worldly-minded, fleshly-minded, enslaved people lose everything. They lose everything. To live for this world, its lusts and its desires, John warns, these things are passing away. But he who does the will of God will endure forever. 
Where are our desires this morning? Where are our minds set? Those who used Babylon lose everything they live for when she falls, but the people of God have an inheritance in heaven. And you are given this incredible picture of being married and then going to this feast afterwards. Matter of fact, we are called to rejoice in the downfall of Babylon, and this is going to lead us into chapter 19. In chapter 18, verse 20, it says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. And that is exactly what we see in Revelation chapter 19. Please look in your scriptures to Revelation 19. We're going to move through this quickly. I'm going to read the first portion of chapter 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. It seemed like something, which means it wasn't exactly that. But it was crying out, Hallelujah, which means praise Yahweh. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Babylon is guilty of idolatry and immorality. Idolatry is a a perversion of what God has created in our hearts, an impulse to worship And idolatry is a perversion of that worship. Immorality is another perversion of God's good gift of the physical pleasure intended between a husband and his wife alone within those boundaries. And immorality is a perversion of that. Babylon comes in and perverts worship and what God intended to be a relationship to be had and enjoyed only within the confines of marriage. That is why the writer of Hebrews warns us, let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. This world system called Babylon elevates and celebrates everything that is distorted and perverted. And if you do not celebrate with them, they will mark you and tag you and shame you and persecute you. In the Himalayan valleys, if you do not spin the prayer wheel, if you do not go to their feasts, if you do not give your child to the monks, they will shame you and they will persecute you. Don't forget the vivid imagery that has led up to this chapter. In chapter 16, verse 6, For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. Chapter 17, verse 6, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Chapter 18, verse 24, And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. No wonder the song goes out. And listen to the chorus. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For His judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Incredible chorus. Buddhist monks take advantage of young children, especially the boys that go to the monastery. Catholic priests continue to make headlines for the deep and dark twisted culture of abuse. 
and evangelicals are still trying to cover up sins of perversion within their own ranks. This is satanic. This is Babylon. So there has to be some kind of a chorus that says, praise God for His salvation and His glory. Praise God that the smoke of the torment goes up forever. When you understand the righteousness and the holiness and the incredible vengeance that God will pour out upon objects of His wrath, that is an appropriate song. Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. That God saves through judgment is most clearly seen when His wrath was poured upon Jesus Christ. Why did He do that? So that we, the unjust, could take on the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And there are people groups scattered throughout the Himalayas that are, that are blind idolaters carried along with Tibetan Buddhism that need to know that God's Son became a sin offering for them so that they can go to the wedding feast of the Lamb. We praise God for His salvation and glory. Secondly, we praise God for His reign and the Lamb's wedding. Look at verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. John can't quite explain what it is, but there's this voice that is similar to this, this unidentified voice, and it cries out in praise. Look what it says. Like thunder crying out, Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. Why? And see, this, this praise isn't necessarily concerned as much with the past as it is with the future. There's a new covenant that was inaugurated when Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose again. And that is about to be consummated or fulfilled or realized. So this praise is not simply the fall of Babylon. This praise goes towards this. The marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. There's that anticipation of the fulfillment of the new covenant. How many times have we seen, especially with social media, uh, when somebody gets engaged, they start a countdown. Right? And there's about two people that are really interested in the countdown. Right? 321 more days. That has no effect on my life today. Right? You know, there is praise for about what's about to happen. There, it's a countdown. Not that you can put a day to it. No man knows the day nor the hour. But this praise has to do with what is coming. Hallelujah. Praise Yahweh for the Lord God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come. He's launching you into the future and looking at the wedding that you will be a part of as the bride of Christ if you are a true believer. And His bride has made herself ready. We've done a lot of weddings now and I love how early 
Even if it's an afternoon wedding, the bride wakes up to make herself ready. The nails, the hair, right? The shopping for the gown. Everything is down and done meticulously. It was granted her, verse 8, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. It's a beautiful picture. There's a similar picture in Hosea. If you understand the, the story of Hosea, Hosea was married to a woman named Gomer. That's, that's memorable. And Gomer, after she was a wife, became a wife of whoredoms, is what the Scripture says. She went and she had several children. And these, the names of these children are to communicate a message. One was not my people, was the interpretation. And the other one was no mercy. Listen to what God says, though. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. Of course, Gomer is a picture of unfaithful Israel. Hosea is a picture of the love of God shown to an unfaithful bride. He says, you will call me in that day my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. He's going to purify her and sanctify her and cleanse her. And I will make for them a covenant on that day, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. This wedding terminology is very familiar both in the Old and the New Testament. Israel became Yahweh's bride at Mount Sinai. And that's why the prophets could indict them for being an unfaithful wife throughout the history of Israel's sins. John the Baptist said that it was his joy that he was a friend of the bridegroom now that the bridegroom, Jesus, had come. Jesus explained that his disciples were not fasting. He was telling those critical bystanders, my disciples aren't fasting. You don't fast when you are with who? When you're with the bridegroom. He told parables about the kingdom of heaven being like a wedding feast. He told people to be ready for his coming like a bridegroom. And Paul explained that marriage between one man and one woman is a beautiful picture of Christ in the church. So the reference to the marriage of the Lamb in 19 verse 7 points to a fulfillment of this new covenant where He comes and makes us His bride. Never has a groom sacrificed more to take to Him a wife as Jesus Christ has. Never has a man gone to greater lengths, traveled farther distances or accomplished more in obtaining his bride than our Lord. Never has a guest list who is also the bride been more unworthy. Never has a man treated his bride more graciously or kindly. Never have we needed a groom, a bridegroom's care and honor more. Listen to what Paul says, that Christ loved the church 
and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he, Christ, might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Never has there been a rags-to-riches story like the one you and I are living out right now. That he took us to be his bride. And we know very well we have no right. We have no righteousness in ourselves to walk down that aisle and meet him. And that's why scripture says, blessed are you when you are invited here. It was granted her to clothe herself. Interesting, there's this, there's this God's initiative in allowing us to clothe ourselves with fine linen, the very righteousness of Christ. In chapter 7, those wearing white robes were not provided robes by themselves, but were the result of washing their robes in the blood of the Lamb. So it is here. Then finally, look at verse 9. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now when it says write this, John's been writing it all along. He was told to write down this revelation. He was told to write to the churches. He was told not to record certain things. And then he was told to record a certain phrase. And now he's told again to write. So it functions like italics or a highlight. What he's saying is get this. What follows is very important. And here's what's very important. There's a certain group of people that are blessed. The mom and the dad stoned by the stream in the Newbury Valley are blessed. The young daughter following her parents' faith and proclaiming the good news to those who would almost never have heard it otherwise, she is blessed. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The book of Revelation was probably read aloud in the seven churches where John was ministering. And they would have read in chapter 2, verse 10, that suffering and tribulation and imprisonment would not be totally evaded. They were going to go through these things. So they needed to know this. They are blessed because they are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The one lady off to the right, Mike and I, we were going up quite the incline at this point, and these Nepali people can hike very well, and she had all kinds of questions for Mike and me. Somehow, with just the three of us, I'm sure we were in the front moving fast, and it was just the three of us isolated. And uh, she, she started asking questions. She had just had an arranged marriage where she married a Buddhist monk. She's a, she's a follower of Jesus Christ. And she was asking how to navigate through that, being invited to the specific cultural, religious things. And some of the things she would do, she'd go up, she'd spin the prayer wheel the other way. But she was asking, in a very real way, how do I navigate being a Jesus follower in a Buddhist culture? And I really believe that at that time, the Holy Spirit guided Mike and I in our answers. And our answers weren't simple, like put your head down and just move through. They were actually... Hey, Jesus warns us that when that he didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And 
to turn father against mother and to turn you know parents against children. And some of these texts were coming out and were instructing her. We're not telling her to like plunge forward into martyrdom, but we were as shepherds graciously guiding her and her responses were incredible. And in one time, of course, she was probably thinking of her friend in the middle of that picture. And she just looked at us with a sweet smile of resolve. And she said, and be stoned, right? She got it. She got the teaching of Jesus Christ. But blessed is she because she is invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. John falls down to worship the speaker, probably assuming it's of divine nature. And he's immediately called out, you must not do that. And then this appeal again, worship God, worship him alone. My question this morning is, how do we how do we wait biblically for the wedding? How do we wait faithfully for our bridegroom? One of the ways is we obey his commands. And certainly, God is not going to call all of us to go somewhere else from here. But one of his key commands he gave just before he was ascended, and he said this, go make disciples of all nations. But where the gospel isn't preached is dangerous. I will be with you wherever you go. He said earlier in that same, in another gospel, I am sending you out as sheep amidst wolves. Make no mistake, God knows the danger and the cost that he's sending you out to. But later on he says, doesn't God value a sparrow when it falls? Same passage where he said he's sending us out as sheep amidst wolves. Doesn't he care for the sparrows? How much more value are you than a sparrow? I just want you to bow your heads while I close and read one more passage. And the worship team can make their way up right now. Jesus was invited to dinner, which is interesting because we considered a feast. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast. But while he's sitting around the dinner table, there are some skeptics and there are some unbelievers. And he said this to them. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. See, they understood the reality that there is a future meal. But Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. 
For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And there are poor and blind and crippled people out there, difficult but accessible to us. We have a responsibility to get the gospel to them. Let's pray.